go ahead and have a seat. Would you pray with me? Our gracious heavenly Father, you are perfect and holy and just. You are righteous and pure. You are perfect love and perfect goodness. And we thank you that we can come before you and we can approach you and not find our sinful selves consumed by your all-consuming perfection. But instead, Lord, you invite us to approach you as our Father. We thank you for this glorious privilege that is given to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received adoption as sons and daughters. We thank you that you sent your Son, who was born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those of us who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because of that, Father, we, because we are your children, you have sent the spirit of your son into our hearts so that we can cry, Abba, Father. And we thank you for this incredible privilege that you have given to us to call you our Father, for us to be your children, to receive the inheritance of children of the most high God. We long for your name to be made great throughout the world. And we long for your will to be done everywhere that we turn. We grieve the areas we see where your will is rejected and scorned, and we think first and foremost in our own hearts, but also in the world around us. We know that in heaven, your will is perfectly obeyed. Your will is perfectly delighted in, in your kingdom, but it's not yet here. And so we long for you to bring your kingdom here, to spread the name of Jesus Christ to all the nations of the earth. We long for your name to be revered and honored and worshiped as it ought to be. And we pray that you would drive out the rebellion and the sin and to replace it with worship instead. The song that redounds in heaven cries out to you who sit on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Lord, that is our prayer, that you would receive all glory and all honor forever and ever. It's the greatest desire of our hearts. It's the deepest longing of our hearts. And we long to see the day where that will spread over the course of this world and where sinners will be turned into worshipers. We also recognize, though, Lord, in our hearts, that there are plenty of other cares and concerns that so frequently rise to the forefront of our minds and of our prayers that occupy our attention and our cares. And we are so thankful that you are gracious to hear us when we cry out to you. You aren't one who dismisses us and tells us, listen, I got far bigger concerns than whatever requests you're bringing to me in this moment. You're not so preoccupied with someone somewhere else in the world that you can't listen to us. You don't stay far off or distant. You're not disinterested in the anxieties that weigh upon our hearts. In fact, Lord, far from it. Instead, you call us to cast all of our anxieties upon you because you care for us. And what gracious love that you would hear our cries and take our burdens upon yourself. And even as our Lord Jesus said later in Matthew chapter six, we don't need to be anxious for anything because you know what we need and you'll provide for what we need according to your perfect and your good will. We come before you as needy sinners and we find in you forgiveness and cleansing. We come before you desperately dependent on you for any good thing and we find in you perfect provision to meet all of our needs. We come before you weak and frail in the fight against sin and temptation, and we find in you the strength to stand firm against the evil one. We thank you for your goodness and your grace toward us, our Heavenly Father. And as we reflect back over the past year, we are reminded again of your faithfulness toward us. We see the ways in which you have provided, big and small, for our needs, the ways in which you have answered our prayers, the ways in which you have met every one of us, 
in the midst of both the joys and the sorrows that this past year has brought. But most of all, we thank you that you have been with us every step of the way. There has not been a single day, not been a single moment of the past year where we have navigated this life without you. And we trust that you will remain with us every moment of the year to come. You ask us, you say to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And so Lord, we ask for your strength for today and we trust that you will give us strength for tomorrow when it comes. Give us strength for today and give us bright hope for tomorrow. Lord, may you strengthen us to depend more upon you, to trust you more and to look more like your son Jesus in the year ahead. May we lean wholly upon you and wholly upon your strength in all things. And we ask this, in the precious name of our Lord Jesus, amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's word to Matthew chapter six. Matthew chapter six. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the pew in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, please, when you leave today, take that one with you. We would love for you to have that one. Matthew chapter six. We'll jump back into our study on John's gospel beginning next week. Uh, but we're taking a, a brief uh, one week pause on that to look at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, to enter the new year talking about prayer. As you turn there, I want to make you aware of a couple of things uh, entering the upcoming year. One is we're going to talk about prayer. The other is we want to talk about Bible reading. And uh, what happens is January 1 is right around the corner. And so Genesis chapter 1 looks more appealing. And as many of us can attest, we begin in Genesis chapter 1, and then we make it through Genesis. We're like, this is going great. And then we make it into Exodus, and we say, well, this is also pretty great. And then you come to the law in Exodus, and you say, okay, well, this is a little drier, but I can make it. And then you get to Leviticus, and then comes New Year's Eve, and you're thinking, well, I had good intentions. So... Here's what we're wanting to do. There's no guilt in that. Uh, there's nothing in scripture that says you have to read through the Bible in one year or in this time frame. But what we want to do is try to say, let's come together as a church and rally around this and let's read through the Bible together. And so what you'll find outside of the worship center are uh, these little half sheets of paper. And this is a Bible reading guide for the 2024 year. And we're going to do this together as a church. I would encourage you to join us in this and to read through the Bible in a year with us. And there'll be some things that happen along the course of this up coming year where we try to help uh, kind of make sure we're all on the same page in this. The way it works is this, there's, uh, you'll, you'll read for five days out of the week and you'll have the weekends to catch up, uh, Saturdays and Sundays. Um, so you'll read for five days and if you keep this up for five days each week throughout the course of the year, we will read through the Old Testament once, the New Testament twice, and the Psalms twice in the course of a year. Every day you're reading from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, and from the Psalms. Uh, that roughly evens out to about six chapters a day in the scripture, and then you have the weekends. So uh, I invite you to join us with that. You'll find that on the tables outside the worship center, and please grab one as you leave, and, and beginning tomorrow, we'll read through the Bible as a church this upcoming year. I'm really looking forward to be able to do that with you all. Matthew chapter 6 in the Bible talks about prayer. Another thing I want to see us grow in as a church in this upcoming year is to be a more prayerful church. Kevin DeYoung wrote an excellent book on the Lord's Prayer, and he asked this question at the start of it. He said, is there any activity more essential to the Christian life and yet more discouraging in the Christian life than prayer? We know we should pray, and we want to pray, or at least we want to want to pray. We admire those who do pray. 
And yet, when it comes to actually praying, most of us feel like failures. If someone asked us right now, how is your prayer life going? Very few of us would be happy for the question and confident in our response. We wish we prayed more often. We wish we prayed longer. We wish we prayed better. I bet none of us anticipates getting to the end of our lives and thinking to ourselves, you know what? I feel really good about what my prayer life has been all these years. We are much more apt to resonate with the question that I read from a pastor several years ago as he reflected on his own life and prayer. How can something I'm so bad at be God's will for my life? I think many of us resonate with his words. In fact, when you hear, okay, we're gonna be talking about prayer this morning, you're thinking, Josh, the only things you could talk about that would be worse are giving and evangelism. Like this is not a great way to enter the new year. We know that praying is something we should do. We all maybe wish we were better at it, and yet we don't exactly know how to pray. And one of my hopes for us as a church in the upcoming years is that we would be a more prayerful church. And in many ways, we already are. So I just want to say, church, thank you for the ways in which you already pray for brothers and sisters, including myself, on a regular basis. It is a rich blessing and a gift for me as your pastor. How many of you come up to me on a regular basis and say, I'm praying for you? It is an amazing gift that you have given to me, and it's an amazing gift that you give to so many others in this church when you come alongside them and pray for them. And I see that happening all over this place, praying for brothers and sisters. And so I I commend you, church, and I say, way to go and keep going. There are many avenues in which people gather to pray throughout the week at this church including on Sunday mornings before the service. There's a group of us that gathers and we pray over every element of that morning. I'm so thankful for the ways in which we are a praying church. And yet, I would long to see us continue to grow more and more as a praying church. This past year, one of the books that our Board of Elders read was uh, Mark Dever wrote a book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And we read through that. And uh, as the conversation went on, we were kind of evaluating where we were at as a church uh, in line with some of these, uh, these, these marks that he gave. He said, you know, there's, there's better metrics to use than maybe numbers or offering. What, what really makes a healthy church? And one of the marks that he said was prayer. And one of the common sentiments that many of our elders shared was that's an area we would like to see our church continue to grow in. And so we're in this spot where, church, I commend you for how we are a praying church, and yet I long to see us grow more and more into a praying church. And so as we look toward the upcoming year, I wanted to spend a Sunday reflecting on prayer. And my prayer is that this would set the tone for us as we enter into a new year. So Matthew chapter 6. We'll be back in John next week, but... We're in a different gospel today. This is in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching his disciples. In many ways, we could boil down the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount to a call to trust in and depend upon God for everything that we have. And so it's natural then that in the midst of that sermon, Jesus would teach them about prayer. When Luke says, when Luke tells us about this, Luke actually says the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, how should we pray? And we should listen to what Jesus says then about how we should pray. Uh, you think about it, if, uh, uh, if, if many years ago um, you were sitting around and you're, you're using your iPhone and Steve Jobs walks up and says, hey, can I give you a tip on how to use that? You would be a little foolish to say, no thanks, I'm an expert on this thing, to the man who invented it. Similarly, when Jesus says, here's how to pray, we would be foolish to ignore his words on the matter. And so Matthew tells us what Jesus says to his disciples. And I'm going to ask for you to stand for the reading of God's word from Matthew chapter 6, 
We will begin in verse 5 and read through verse 13. Jesus, speaking to the crowds in the Sermon on the Mount, says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. May you write the truth of your word upon our hearts. Impress it deep within us that we would see you and know you and delight in you. Through your word as it goes forth this morning. We ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. It's the most famous prayer ever prayed. We could, in many ways, say the Lord's Prayer actually is maybe more fitting for John chapter 17, which we will get to in a few months, probably. Uh, John chapter 17. Uh, In that chapter, it's all one big prayer from Jesus. We'd say, well, well, that seems most like the Lord's Prayer. But here, Jesus is teaching us how we ought to pray. And so we should learn from our Lord on these things. I want you to notice four different components to prayer that Jesus mentions in this sermon. There's a lot more we could say about this. In fact, we could spend several weeks just unpacking these words, but we're going to take a big picture bird's eye view this morning and say, okay, what does Jesus say about prayer and what can we learn from him about it? The first thing we are to notice is that we are to pray in humility. We're to pray in humility. See, it's interesting before Jesus even gets to the part that we're familiar with, the part that maybe you have memorized of our father in heaven, he tells them how they should not pray. Before he tells them, here's how you ought to pray, he tells them, here's how you shouldn't pray. He says, don't pray like those hypocrites that you see around you. He uses a bad example, uh, an example of prayer gone wrong that we see. And and this is actually drawing on something he said earlier in verse 1. So if you back up to verse 1 of chapter 6, he says to the crowds, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward for your father who is in heaven. So so the point is, Jesus says, okay, watch out that you're not just doing these righteous acts to impress other people. So then he applies it to generosity toward the poor. And then he applies it toward good works of service. And then he applies it to prayer. So he's really fleshing out this principle of beware of doing these things just to impress others so that they see you and think, wow, that person's so amazing. So then verse five, when you pray, so now he's applying it to prayer. You must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Well, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. The kind of prayer that Jesus warns us against is the kind of prayer that has in mind just impressing other people, wanting them to think, look how great I am. A prayer that is in hypocrisy. It's important we understand, what does it mean to be a hypocrite? A hypocrite is someone who lives one way in public and then lives another way in private. So, for example, it's the person who isn't outspoken about being a vegetarian and eating meat is cruel and every night they have bacon for dinner. 
the person who is the public champion for family values in the culture and every night is sleeping with a prostitute. It's what hypocrisy is, someone who's living one way in public and a different way in private. But can I say we often think about being a hypocrite a little bit differently than that? We tend to make a subtle distinction in that and that we think hypocrisy is uh, living differently than what you feel. It's not living one way in public and one way in private, it's living differently than what I feel. So if I don't feel like doing something and I do it anyway, then I must be a hypocrite. Here, DeYoung is helpful again. He says this, too often Christians think of hypocrites as people who do one thing, but feel another, but that's not hypocrisy. Hypocrites publicize one set of beliefs, but live by a different set of beliefs. When you come to church, but don't feel like it, that's faithfulness. When you do the right thing in your marriage, even when you don't feel much in love, that's fidelity. I've heard too many times, well, pastor, I'd be a hypocrite to stay in this marriage because I'm just not in love anymore. Or I'd be a hypocrite to come to worship when I don't feel like worshiping. Or I'd be a hypocrite to pray since I'm not sure what I believe and I feel distant. But doing what is right when you don't feel like doing what is right is maturity. Professing one thing in public, but living a different way in private, that's hypocrisy. I think it's an important word for us and our generation because we are so often led by what we feel. We think the highest aim, the highest driver is whatever I feel must be right, be true to ourselves. But Jesus has in mind something different than that. It is not hypocrisy when you say, I don't feel like doing this, but I know the Lord calls me to do it, so I'm gonna do it anyway. That's biblical faithfulness. It is hypocrisy to say, I'm gonna put on a show with other people around me and live a totally different way in private. That I'm gonna do these things just to impress everyone else so that they think I'm a super spiritual Christian and yet behind closed doors, I'm totally different. What it might look like is maybe a particular danger for those who are in the church, serving in ministry in various ways. And you get a reputation for spirituality and a reputation for godliness that doesn't look the same behind the scenes. You only pray when other people are around to hear you. You're more aware of what other people think of you than what God thinks of you. You're more interested in how they think of your prayer than what God thinks of your prayer. You're praying mostly for them to hear you and not for God to hear you. Jesus is calling us to pray in humility with this warning. And the point here is not stop praying with other people. That would be a gross misapplication of what Jesus is saying to say, we just could never pray with other people without being a hypocrite. But Jesus is pressing at a deeper reality and he's asking the question, what reward are you really living for? Whose praise are you most seeking? Are you most concerned with being well thought of by outsiders around you? or by being thought righteous by your God. You can fool other people. You can cause other people to think you're different than you really are, more righteous, more spiritual than you really are, but you cannot fool God. Jesus adds this, notice what he adds. He says, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And the point here that he's making is not, well, you should never pray with other people. We'll see that in just a moment. The point is not that, it is that you should pray in faith. Why? Your father who sees in secret will reward you. It is perhaps a litmus test of how much you believe this to say, how much do you pray when no one else is around to hear it? Do you still believe that God hears you? That's the point. Is your prayer primarily so other people can hear you or is your prayer to God knowing he hears you? It is an act of faith to turn to the Lord and it is an act of humility to kneel before him and trust that even if no one else hears me, God hears me. Even if no one else sees what I'm doing in this moment, God sees it. And even if no one else acts upon my request, God hears 
and God will act. It is an act of faith and humility to kneel before the Lord, even in secret, and trust that he sees. See, what we do when we pray is we humble ourselves by living in such a way that even if others don't see what it is we're doing, we know that God does. We know that God hears. And we know that God hears us not on the basis of how impressive our requests sound to him. Jesus is warning against praying, intending to impress other people. But he also warns against praying, intending to try to impress God. Notice how he continues in verse seven. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So part of praying in humility means we don't come to God trying to twist his arm into thinking our way. We don't pray in public, Jesus says, so that others see us and think how great we are. So in other words, the point with that is don't pray trying to impress other people. But then he says, listen, you don't need to come with all these words trying to impress God either when you pray because God already sees. It is not the amount of words that God looks for in terms of how he will answer prayer. It is the heart posture behind it. It is the dependence upon him, the leaning upon him. It's not the persuasiveness of your words as if you needed to persuade God to be for you anyway. You don't need to convince him to give you what you need. God is more eager to answer your prayers than you even are to pray for them. You don't need to persuade him to be your gracious father. You don't need to come with many words to try to convince him of these things. So a brief 30 second prayer from the throes of desperation and dependence upon him is far more precious in his sight than a 30 minute prayer that is grounded in your own self-righteousness. When we come before God, we come not trying to impress him with our many words or our persuasive rhetoric. We come desperately dependent upon our gracious heavenly father for every good thing. And we come in humility and we bow before him. And so you need not be afraid to come and pray and say, I, I don't really know all the words I should use. You don't need to wait until you get it all finely tuned, sounding great before you come to him in prayer. He says, come. I don't hear you on the basis of your many words. I don't hear you on the basis of how impressive you sound. He hears us because he loves us. And he is eager and ready to hear an answer. And so we come in faith and humility, but we also come in trust. We pray in trust. This is the whole point that lies behind the humility. Prayer is an act of faith and prayer is an expression of our trust in the Lord. We trust God, we trust that he hears us. In these verses that Jesus gives us here, there are three important truths about God that I think anchor our prayer life. First, our Father sees in secret. The first, first truth is that your Father sees what happens in secret. Jesus says, your Father who sees in secret, he will reward you. And so we trust that there is nothing that is hidden from his sight, which on the one hand is terrifying news for those of us who are caught in sin because it means there is nothing hidden before the all-seeing God. There is nothing that you can do or will do that escapes his gaze. He is not preoccupied elsewhere. He sees you and he knows you. And yet these words that Jesus gives here are not intended as a terror. They are intended as a comfort. He does not say your father sees what you're doing in secret to scare you. He says these words to comfort you. Because while it's true that God sees the hidden sin in your heart, it is also true that God sees the hidden righteousness in your heart that no one else does. When other people don't see you praying, God sees it. 
when other people don't see the acts of kindness toward another person that you've done. God does. When other people don't see your spiritual walk with the Lord, God sees it. When other people don't see how you're walking in obedience, even amidst great difficulty and inner temptation, God sees it. We trust that God sees what is done in secret. But here's the question, church, do we live like that's the case? Whenever we sin, we're living as if God doesn't really see us, as if God really doesn't hear us, or as if God really isn't all that concerned with what we're doing. We're living as if the act or the desire or the thought is hidden from his sight. But we also see it in more mundane moments where in the quiet of your own home, no one else is around. You wonder, do I really pray when no one else is here to hear it? Do I really read the Bible even though no one else is gonna see me reading the Bible? Do I really stay committed to my spiritual walk even if I don't get credit from anyone else for doing it? Do we really believe that God sees? Jesus reminds us God sees everything. And so when you go to him in prayer, you can trust that he will see you, he will hear you. And this audience is infinitely greater than even the greatest of human audiences. If God sees you, then it really doesn't matter who else does because God and his favor is all that we really need. So the first truth that Jesus gives us is your father sees in secret. The second truth is that your father rewards you. The same father who sees in secret rewards those who come to him. In other words, Jesus is saying this, your father is watching you, but he is not watching you like that police officer parked on the side of the road ready to catch you doing something wrong. He's watching you as a loving father ready to give you exactly what you need when you need it. He's not waiting to punish you. He's waiting to bless you. He's not waiting to catch you in your sin. He's, ready, he's waiting to give you what you need to keep walking in righteousness. He will reward you with what you really need. So not only do we trust that God sees, we trust that he is eager and capable of meeting our needs. And the third truth that is given is that your father already knows what you need. So he sees, he rewards, and he knows. He knows what you need. Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, this is important. Jesus does not say, since God already knows what you need, it doesn't matter if you pray or not. That is said in the midst of a call to Christians to pray. He tells them, pray like this. He's telling them, pray. But he also tells them, when you pray, God already knows what you need. Which is part of the reason why you don't need to come persuading him or trying to convince him anyway, because God already is aware of it and he already knows it. But you need it. The reason we can pray with this kind of trust is because God already knows what we need. You don't have to convince them. Okay, okay kids, you know, maybe at Christmas time, maybe you're trying to convince your parents what you really need. And you're trying to tell them, I want this present and here's why I need it. And so you make up a list for them. You make up a PowerPoint presentation and you say, I'm gonna try to persuade you, this is what I really need. I don't know if that worked out for you or not. I hope it did. But you're trying to convince them, this is what I'm really looking for. You know, when I was a... Uh, when I was younger, I was, uh, I was homeschooled for a little bit, and one of, the one of the years I wanted to stay up late and I wanted to watch a Colts game. Uh, and so I asked my parents, can I stay up and watch it? And they were like, mm, well, we'll think about it. And 
as homeschool parents do, they said, we're gonna turn this into an assignment. And so they said, you need to write a persuasive essay on why we should let you stay up for the game. And let me tell you, I never took a homework assignment more seriously than I took that one. And I spent a lot of effort on that and come to find out afterward, they were already intending to let me watch the game. They just wanted me to ask. Okay, it's not the same thing. Uh, at the moment, I didn't really understand all that was going on. And yet, when we come to the Lord, he already knows what we need and he is already eager to respond. And yet he is honored and worshiped in the asking. He works through the asking to give us what we need. We don't need to try to twist his arm. He's more eager to give to us than we are eager to receive from him. In many ways, these three truths that Jesus gives us are the bedrock to prayer. Your father sees what happens in secret. Your father rewards those who come to him. And your father already knows what you need before you even ask. These are the anchors that drive us to prayer. So do you trust that God sees in secret when no one else is around and it's just you? Do you still pray? Do you trust that God is eager to give to you what you need? That he is not trying to withhold from you you're not trying to have to convince him of it. And do you trust that God already knows what you need before you even open your mouth? If so, it doesn't lead you to stop praying. It actually causes us to pray all the more and to pray in trust. And so Jesus then goes right into it and he says in verse nine, well then pray like this. So he's laid some of the foundation on how we ought to pray and how we are not to pray. And then he says, now here's how you should pray. There's really two categories to this Lord's prayer. It starts with a prayer for God's glory and then it moves to a prayer for our good. And honestly, these are one and the same request. God's glory is our good. We get joy when God gets glory. The life lived for God's glory is the best life any of us could ever have. And so we are really asking for much the same thing, but we see next that we ought to pray in reverence, not just in humility, not just in trust, but in reverence, or we might say in worship. Verse nine. Jesus says, this is how you pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And before we move any further into request, please notice the first two words. Don't miss the first two words. We'll take them one at a time because these are both essential and perhaps we skip right through them as we move into the rest of the prayer. First, the word is this, our Father. This prayer is thoroughly communal. This is not a me and God thing. It is a we thing. The prayer is filled with plural language, which is why it would be a misapplication of this text when Jesus says, pray in secret, to assume, well, I can never pray with other people around. In fact, the Lord's prayer is a thoroughly communal prayer that the church prays together collectively, not primarily an individual prayer. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do you realize that prayer is we, not me? So yes, listen, pray individually, pray alone. But pray with others as well. If you only ever pray with other people, Perhaps you need to ask, 
Do I really believe God sees what happens in secret? Do I really believe that he hears me even when other people aren't around? And yet, if you only pray by yourself and never with others, you ask, okay, am I really understanding the kind of covenant community that the church really is intended to be? As Jesus says here, our father. He is our father, not just my father. We ought to be a praying church and more than just us praying individually, we ought to gather together to pray. Recently, Tim Challies published, a, it's an excellent article, thought-provoking. Uh, he just collected a bunch of random thoughts and pieces of advice about the church that he had been thinking about over a course of time. And one of, the, one of the notes he shared was this, one of the random thoughts about church life that he observed was this. Few people want to be part of a church that doesn't pray, but few people want to attend a prayer meeting. And you should ponder this conundrum. How committed are we to corporate public prayer together asking the Lord for these things together. See, the Lord's prayer strikes at the heart of the individualism of our age. It reminds us when we come to God as father, we are coming with our brothers and sisters to our father, asking him to give us these things. It reminds us, for example, that I should not just be satisfied that I get my daily bread, give us this day our daily bread. When my brother or sister is hungry, I should not just be satisfied, well, God gave me the food. No, no, God, give us the bread that we need. Give us the provision we need for this day. It is a collective communal prayer. Maybe we skip too quickly past that first word that he gives us here. But maybe we also skip too quickly past that second word, our Father. Jesus says, pray to your Father who is in heaven. He tells us to call God our Father, to approach God as our Father, and this is a stunning reality that we should not be too quick to move past. You've probably heard it before, but don't miss the amazement that you can call the Father in heaven, your own Father, Abba Father. What this teaches us is that prayer is primarily relational. It is communal, meaning with other people, but it is also relational, meaning we come to a Father in what we ask. This is not a transactional thing, as if prayer is just something you turn to when you wanna get something. It's not a consumeristic thing. Just give me what I want, as if he were some cosmic genie. This is a relationship with your father. There is an intimacy that is hinted at here with the father whom you can know and love and you can be known and loved by. And this is the great blessing that was won for us by Christ at the cross. Friend, if you were here this morning and you were not a Christian, can I say I'm really glad you're here? But when we talk about God being our father, this is something that is true of Christians and not of everybody. It's not an inherent right given to all human beings. Sometimes we talk about, well, we're all God's children. For example, did you know Santa knows that we're all God's children and that makes everything right? Insofar as we're meaning we're all created by God, that's true. Insofar as we're meaning that God is actually our personal father whom we can come to and relate to, that's something only true of Christians. There's not an inherent right given to human beings at birth. That is a right given to Christians at their new birth as they are saved by Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are not all God's children. We are actually alienated by God because of our sin, separated from him. That's our greatest problem, that we actually can't approach this God. We can't approach the holy God and have this kind of intimacy with him because we are rebels against him. And the moment that sinful rebels come into the presence of a holy God, we are consumed in judgment. That's our problem. We can't come, but that's why God sent his son. 
That's why we celebrate Christmas time of Jesus being born because he sent his son to redeem us from our sins so that we might be adopted as sons and daughters of the most high God. Jesus came to purchase us and to die for our sins that we would know God, not just know that there is a God out there, but relate to him as our father who loves us and forgives us and is full of grace toward us. John told us, to all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gives the right. It's not one granted by physical birth. It's not one that you can earn yourself because this does not come of human will. He says this is a privilege given through spiritual birth by faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. A faith that trusts that he is the promised rescuer to deliver us from sin and bring us to God. The Bible tells us, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our heart, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, you're a son. And if you're a son, then you are an heir through God. Do you see how incredible it is that the Bible says we can call God our Father through Jesus Christ, our Lord? And this informs how we ought to approach him. God is your father. The fact that he is God means you don't come to him lightly as if it is a trivial thing to be flippant in his presence because he is the holy God of the universe. But the fact that he is your father means you don't come timidly as if you need to wonder how he's going to respond to you. I love the way that Tim Keller said it. He says, the only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is his child. And we have that kind of access with God. You don't need to wonder how God's going to respond. We don't come to him flippantly, nor do we come timidly. We come to the holy God who is our father, knowing he will welcome us and receive us with open arms. So could we say it like this? If your prayer life is dull and boring and you struggle to pray, you're in great company here. But could it be that your view of God is too low? And that is the reason why prayer is so dull. The place to start, if you're wondering, how can I grow in prayer? Here's the place to start. Start by remembering who your God is and being captivated by his beauty and his goodness and how great he is. And understand that's the God that I can draw near to in prayer. That's the God that I call my father. Jim Packer said it like this, the vitality of prayer lies largely in the vision of God that prompts it. So drab thoughts about God make prayer dull. Remember who it is that you are praying to, friend. You are praying to the King of heaven, your Father, who invites you to come near in Jesus Christ, his Son, and to bring whatever request that you have upon your heart before him. And Jesus doesn't just leave it up to us and say, well, you figure out what to say then. He presses deeper and says, here's what you should pray for. Here's the requests you should bring. And first and foremost among them, pray for God to be glorified throughout the world. It's a series of petitions that he gives. And the first is pray for God's name to be hallowed, meaning revered, worshiped, honored as it ought to be. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We want to see the honor and the fame of God's name spread and we are grieved when his name is taken in vain. We are grieved when his name is dishonored. We are grieved when he is not worshiped like he should be. 
We long for him to receive the glory that he so richly deserves. That's the first petition. The second one, for God's kingdom to come, his name to be hallowed and his kingdom to come. It's already here in part, but not yet in full. Jesus has brought the inbreaking of his heavenly kingdom, but we still see the brokenness and evil in our world. We see the remnants of the devil's tyranny and his grip on us. We see holdouts from a cruel reign that has already been defeated and dying, but is not yet in the grave. That's the world in which we live now. It is already here. The kingdom of God is already here, but not yet here in fullness. So we pray, Lord, would your kingdom come? Notice though, Jesus does not tell us, pray for strength to go out and build the kingdom yourself. He says, ask the Lord to give it to you. The kingdom of God is not something that we build, it's something that we receive as God builds it. He does his work in the world. We live on mission, spreading the fame of God's name, but it is not up to us to build the kingdom. We receive it as a gift from the Father. And so we ask, Lord, would your kingdom come in full? We long for the day where Jesus will return and he will set all things right where his name will be hallowed, revered, worshiped all over the globe. And so third, we pray for his will to be done on earth. His name to be hallowed, his will, his kingdom to come and his will to be done. We see this, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right now in heaven, there is not a single being disobeying God or resisting his will. His will is perfectly obeyed and perfectly delighted in in heaven right this moment. It is earth where it's not. It is our world where his will is being rejected and his name is being dishonored. And so we long for this world to be filled with people who obey him in righteousness and delight in his will as in heaven. That's what we pray for. All, all three of these requests are inherently about God's glory. The main driver of prayer, the main request in prayer is for God's will to be done, not my will to be done. The main request in prayer is for God's name to be great, not my name to be great. The main request in prayer is that God's kingdom would come, not my kingdom would be built. And so we look at our prayer lives and we say, what does it look most like? If all my prayers were answered, would I have a bigger kingdom than God? If all my prayers were answered, would my name be greater in the world than God's name? Prayer is submitting our desires to God, laying aside our glory so that his can be proclaimed. Jesus is teaching us to lay down our self-reliance, to lay down our self-sufficiency, to lay down our desperate desire to make our own names great and to build our own kingdoms. And Jesus says, no, 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 seek my glory and my will, and my kingdom above your own. Prayer is pleading with God to glorify his name as we humble ourselves, as we give up our desire to see our own name glorified. The chief aim of this world, the chief aim of our existence, and the chief aim of our prayer life ought to be the glory of God. Prayer not only asks God to do it, prayer shapes us into desiring it more. The more we pray for that, the more we come to desire that in the world. Prayer is one of the chief tools that God uses to conform our wills and our desires to his. Prayer is one of the main means by which God crucifies ourself and draws us increasingly upon him. However, that does not mean God is indifferent 
to the other cares that linger in your heart. It actually means we'll find a better life under the provision of God when we seek his glory than we'll find seeking our own glory. What Jesus doesn't tell us is God doesn't care about those other things. Jesus tells us, bring them to me. So fourth, we pray in dependence. He tells us, here's what you should care most about. Here's what you should pray first and foremost about, the glory of God. And yet, and yet, bring your request to God. And he gives us a series of requests that we are to bring. He says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God already knows what you need, but he is honored by your asking. He works through your asking and he shapes you through your asking. And so he says, bring your request to me. Again, to quote DeYoung one more time, he says this, you should not feel shame in bringing before the Lord the smallest things. So you can't find your car keys or you want your dog to get better? Cast your cares upon the Lord. But recognize that it doesn't take the spirit of God to want those things. You don't have to be a Christian to want sick people to get better. You don't have to be a Christian to want a job or to get married or to have kids or to have your life go well. When we pray, Heavenly Father, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are asking God for the inbreaking of the messianic age. We are asking for his commandments to be obeyed promptly, gladly, and sincerely. We are asking for Christ to reign in human hearts. We are asking for the redemptive presence of God to be known and felt here and now. We are asking for the reign and rule of heaven to be experienced on earth. We are asking for God's final victory to arrive sooner than we think. The Lord's prayer is the cry of God's people saying, come Lord Jesus and come quickly. This is what Jesus is teaching us. He's saying, bring your request to me. Bring the desires, bring the cares. But here's what you should care most about. Here's what should be first and foremost in your mind is the glory of God. Our request should be shaped by what God has done for us in Christ and the desire for God to be glorified. But God is not ignorant of the other needs that we have on a daily basis. He's not ignorant of the other cares and concerns that linger in our hearts. And so preoccupy our attention that it makes it hard to focus on anything else. God is not ignorant of those things. And he says, come to me. In fact, he says elsewhere, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Even in Matthew chapter six, after this section, a little bit later, Jesus says, don't be anxious for anything. Why? You look at the birds. Do you see how God takes care of them? He'll take care of you. A little bit later, he says, okay, which of you, if your son asks you for bread, will give him a rock? Your father's a good gift giver. Jesus is calling us to bring our requests to God and to trust him with them. To not live in anxiety, not to carry these things around on, on, on us, but to give them to the Lord. I trust you. First, we pray for our daily bread. This is your daily provision. And historically, Christians have understood these words to be more than just about physical food, but about all that we need on a day-to-day -day basis. So Jesus already told us, your father knows what you need before you ask him. So ask him for it. Give us this day our daily bread. Give me what I need today. But you see, Jesus says, give me this day, the daily bread, how often are we praying for things that are so far out in the future? It's not bad to pray for those things. 
But how often are we asking for strength for some future day? If all of your prayers, it's not bad to pray for something in the future, but if all of your prayers are about something that is yet to come, it might be that you're forgetting how dependent you are on God today, not just then. See, we tend to think we're self-sufficient. I don't need really God to give me my daily bread because I can just run to the grocery store and get it if I really need it. We tend to think we're more self-sufficient than we really are. We tend to think we can provide for ourselves and that we only really need God to show up on the big things and we can handle everything else. But such a mindset is foolish and incredibly short-sighted. Every one of us in this room is far more dependent upon the Lord than any of us realize. See, life is fragile and you may think you know where your next meal is coming from, and yet you are still entirely dependent upon God for any good thing that you see. And so we understand that one of the chief aims of prayer is to recognize and express our complete dependence upon God. It's a simple fact of our spiritual lives that the less we pray, the less we're depending on God and the less we think we need him for our daily bread. If you want a diagnostic tool to reveal how much you are actually leaning on God and depending on God, look at how often you lean on him in prayer. Jesus is reminding us of our daily, never-ending need for God in all things. And isn't this what you would rather have? One of the authors put it like this. He says, okay, he put it rather humorously. He says, would you rather God treats you like the family dog when you go away on vacation? He gives you all the food, leaves you, and says, go ahead and eat whatever you want. Or would you rather God say, I'll be with you every step of the way. And when you need something, I'll give it to you. Which would we prefer? God says, I'm with you. I know what you need and I'm walking with you through it. When you need it, I'll give it to you. And so we trust him. We say, Lord, give me this day what I really need. Whenever the future finally does get here, God will be there too. And he'll be ready to give us exactly what we need in that moment to keep walking with him. So trust him today to give you what you need today, your daily bread. Second, Jesus says, ask for the forgiveness of sins. And this is grounded in the gospel in whom, in Christ is found forgiveness. We've all rebelled against God. We've all sinned against him and our sins are grievous before him. But in Christ, we are forgiven. So what does that look like for the Christian on a daily basis who has already been forgiven at the cross? Do you still pray for the forgiveness of sins? And the answer is yes, but in a different way. This is why it is so important that Jesus says, come and say, our father in heaven. He doesn't say our judge in heaven. When you come asking for the forgiveness of sins after having come to faith in Jesus, you do not come needing to be re-justified or re-saved. But you do realize that your sin hinders an intimacy with God, your Father. So you come confessing and saying, Father, I want to know you and walk with you. And I don't want this sin to get in the way. You don't come needing fresh forgiveness in the sense of you don't come needing new justification to be with God. You come needing renewed intimacy with your Father. Prayer is relational. And so we come confessing our sins knowing that we'll find forgiveness because we desire to walk with our heavenly father. And finally, Jesus says, pray that we would not be led into temptation, but delivered from evil. Now, God is not the author of evil, but in praying this, we recognize this world is filled with devils and trials and temptations. And we are confessing God and God alone is our refuge and our stronghold amidst all of them.
In our own strength, we can't do it. In his, we can stand. So in praying like this, we are forming ourselves to hate sin enough and to pray that we won't sin. We are trusting that God will always be our rock in the midst of temptation. So can I ask, when you're tempted to sin, is your response to turn to God in prayer? Is that your gut instinct, your gut response? When you face temptation, is your response, God, help me. Do you believe that when you're tempted, he will always provide a way out of it? Do we turn to him in prayer saying, lead me not in temptation, deliver me from evil? In praying this way, we are living on guard against the sinful powers and the sinful lusts, and we are pleading our dependence upon God to be our refuge and our strength. This is what Jesus calls us to pray for. We pray for God to provide what we need, to forgive our sins, and to be our shield and our defense against the temptations and the evil that come. For our good, but also for his glory. Because this, act, this life of dependence is itself an act of glorifying God as we lean upon him. The Christian life is not one of increasing independence. It is one of increasing dependence upon the Lord. And this is the kind of dependence that the Lord Jesus calls every one of us to undertake. Church, may this be the kind of prayerful dependence that marks us in ever-increasing ways in the year ahead. May this year be the year of our greatest dependence has ever been. This is what the Christian life looks like. It is prayerful dependence upon God, our Father. And so Packer says this about prayer and about the, what the Lord's Prayer. What is meant to be a Christian is nowhere clearer than it is here. And if that's the case, then let this prayer and these things that Jesus calls us to pray for, let that be what marks us in the year ahead. Let us be a church that is zealous for the glory of God above all things as we lean wholly upon him and trust him to provide for everything we need. Church, let's do this together. This is a communal prayer. Let's do this together as we plead our heavenly father for his name to be glorified as we depend on him for every good thing. So would you pray with me right now? Father, we thank you we thank you for your goodness, your kindness toward us, that we can come before you and call you our Father through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We do long to see your name glorified. We do long to see your kingdom come. We do long to see your will be done here on earth, just like it's being done in heaven right now today. The heavenly hosts today around your throne are redounding to your praise, and yet here on earth we see sinful human beings rebelling against you. Lord, we long for the day where you will come and make all things right, where your name will be worshipped and revered all over this globe. We long for that day, and we ask, come, Lord Jesus. But as we walk today, we are well aware of the sin that lurks within us, the temptations that beckon us to leave you, the evils around us in this world and our ever-dependent need for you. So we pray you'd give us what we need today, that you should forgive us of our sins so that we would walk with you in intimacy, knowing you as our Father, and that you will not lead us into temptation, but you will deliver us from evil, that you would be our refuge and our stronghold in the face of sin. Thank you for your grace toward us, your goodness toward us, your kindness toward us, and thank you that we can come before you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.